Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week, we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. Today, we're talking about one of the biggest examples of investigative journalism that we have seen this year. Last month, BuzzFeed News published the Finson Files investigation in collaboration with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. That was accompanied by a five-episode podcast series called Suspicious Activity Inside the Finson Files, and I do encourage you to take a listen if you haven't already. BuzzFeed gained access to more than 2,000 of the most sensitive government documents you can imagine, but they realised they needed help sifting through all the findings. So, it enlisted the help of the ICIJ, assembling a team of more than 400 reporters from 88 countries. Joining me on Zoom today is Richard Holmes, BuzzFeed's investigative reporter, who shares with me his experiences on the investigation. Finson is an investigation into dirty money entering the global economy through complicit banks. Richard takes me through his part of the story, the challenges of working with whistleblowers, and documents even he had never heard of prior to getting involved. Documents so sensitive, they posed a national security risk if disseminated. That's all to come, but first, here's something to put into your diary. As well as great editorial content, journalism.co.uk provides media training for journalists, editors and other media professionals. On the 2nd of November 2020, we are running an online course on how to become a successful freelance journalist. That's led by Lily Cantor and Emma Wilkinson, two experienced freelance journalists and the co-authors and co-hosts of the Freelancing for Journalists book and podcast. For this course and all the other great courses we run, head over to journalism.co.uk forward slash courses. Richard, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. What's the working situation like for you at the moment? It's good. Uh, I mean, I've, I've got used to working out of my um, my house by now, but no, it's it's good. We just finished this this rather large investigation, so it's always a an interesting time as an investigative journalist because you it's probably the the most downtime you ever get. Um, Quiet before the storm, then. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. To say um, a large investigation might be putting it mildly, Richard. Uh, BuzzFeed itself described the Finson files as an investigation of historic scale. And that's not really an exaggeration. Um, You know, it involves more than 2,000 of these government uh, documents that shows this rather huge money trail um, of how dark money sort of enters into our global economy via, let's be honest, complicit banks. So having hit publish on that last month, what's the aftermath been like? It's been really um, great, actually. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's 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 always nerve wracking because you spend so much time on these things and you, you wonder if anyone else really cares about them. But I guess this was unique in the sense that we were working with so many people on the project. Um, but no, in the aftermath, it's been it's been really incredible to see how. Um, other media organisations have, have picked it up, but also how um, parliamentarians in, across Europe and the US are, are reacting to it. You know, we've started a real conversation about the current regulations in place around these financial institutions. Um, and, you know, people like uh, Elizabeth Warren in the US and uh, Bernie Sanders have added that to that conversation. And, you know, there's some serious talk going on in, in European Parliament at the moment about what reforms could be brought in. So 
that's really what we want to see. We want to see some real positive conversation and some some potential impact on those conversations whenever we publish something like this. And um, it's great to hear. It's great to hear. So these um, government documents that I'm alluding to are the um, the suspicious activity reports, and we'll be calling those SARS today for short. The, the big point made throughout the investigation is just the secrecy around these uh, documents that, you know, before this was all published, very few people knew of their existence. So I guess the burning question to start with is, how on earth did BuzzFeed get hold of these documents? Well, I, I, it may, may come as no surprise, but uh, I have to be incredibly careful about um, talking about sourcing and methods of sourcing of these documents. I mean, um, Vincent themselves, when we, we told them we were looking to report details of these suspicious activity reports, um, released a statement on their, their homepage, and it was on there for quite some time, um, saying that the unauthorised disclosure of SARS is a crime that can impact the national security of the United States. So have to be incredibly careful when talking about where these SARS came from. But uh, I can say so much as that it came from some seriously dogged reporting and, and uh, from two of my colleagues, Jason Leopold and Nancy Cormier uh, in the US and um, originally came from their sort of investigation into Donald Trump's links with Russia, which led them down this path towards um, FinCEN, this organization in the US. Um, and then, you know, through through that dogged reporting um, led to uh, them gaining access to these very secretive files. So we're talking the genesis of the FinCEN files investigation is around the time of the US 2016 election, when BuzzFeed senior journalists Anthony Cormier and Jason Leopold were looking into SARS relating to Paul Manafort, Trump's former campaign manager. And this coincided with the Miller investigation. The US special counsel was also looking at these documents and investigating alleged links between Trump and Russia. Here's a clip from episode one of BuzzFeed's Suspicious Activity podcast. We hear BuzzFeed reporter and podcast host Azim Gureshi talking to Anthony about the moment they went live with these documents. They didn't know if or when the Office of the Special Counsel would make any moves, but they knew the clock was ticking, and they wanted their story to be out first. You know, then it was on a, a Friday night, and I think it was my daughter's second birthday. Great time. And it, it always is. And um, Ben Smith gave me a call and said, did you see what CNN just reported? Ben Smith was BuzzFeed News' editor-in-chief at the time. Special Counsel, according to CNN, was prepared to indict the first person that it was going to. It was, it, this was the, the day. And so we did a little reporting, and we're like, oh, shit. We don't run these documents. We might get scooped by the special counsel. Anthony and Jason spent the weekend reporting out further details. And on a Sunday morning, they published a story saying that Mueller was looking at evidence of 13 suspicious transactions conducted by Paul Manafort. And Monday morning, Mueller had indicted Manafort. And every single one of those 13 transactions were the backbone of his indictment. Uh, and so, you know, we were in the game. I remember calling Jason that Monday morning. And he, he's in L.A., and so I'm a little early, and I'm like, bro, man, get up. Get up, get up, get up, get up. <laughs> Dude, we got all of it. All of it was right. Um, and then from that, it just stemmed into this much larger picture, which which painted a sort of a very depressing image of, of banking and uh, financial regulation. 
Um, so then, can you establish a timeline for me in terms of when you sort of came into the picture and got involved with this investigation? So I didn't come into the picture until sort of midway through last year. And um, that was during a time when they, the, 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 the guys on the team had just started to realise what significance these documents actually held. Because up until the last year, there was still very much a focus on Trump. And, you know, I think the first thing they did was, you know, search Trump in the, in the files as soon as they got them. Um, but then my colleague, uh, Tom Warren, midway through last year, went over to New York to um, take a look at this information and, and really talk to the team about it. And he just blew this whole project open. I think anyone at BuzzFeed, when you say he did a Tom Warren, will understand that he basically turned something so complex into something really exciting. And that's what Tom's really great at doing and just does time and time again with his reporting and why he's so successful at what he does. But he went over there and just sort of saw the saw the complete picture of what it was and what what these documents represented. And that was, you know, the hallowness of banking safeguards and the way that some of these financial institutions are completely, as you said, complicit in large scale money laundering. And so from that point, they thought, oh, wow, crikey, uh, we probably should bring on some some more people to that project. And um, due to my you know, previous reporting on uh, security and intelligence in the UK and the US, they thought that maybe it would be a good idea to to loop me in on that project, which I'm internally grateful for. So we will obviously go into your your background and how that kind of slotted into this project. But. Do you remember the first time that you, you looked at these files? Did you have any idea what you were looking at? So I had an, an inkling that there was something big boiling over uh, on the investigations team. I mean, we're we're a pretty open team. Um, there's about 20 of us uh, in the US and the UK. But then there was, you know, people going into meetings and, and talking about money. And re- I could tell there was just something going on. And then when I was looped into the project, it was like, it was like a kid in a candy store. You know, you, I spend my whole time when I'm reporting a story looking for those key documents. I always try and believe that that key document exists. And now I've been presented with a with thousands of these documents that just the possibilities in them were were, were incredible. And, you know, the, the, the amount of detail in some of them was was incredible. I mean, it's fair to say the amount of detail in some of the other ones was pretty poor, but just the the number of um of these reports that we got and and, and you know i've never heard of a, a SAR before but i i certainly uh, uh gained an appreciation for them then when i uh, finally saw one I'm, I'm in no doubt that you've seen many financial documents in your career how does a SAR compare to what you've already experienced up until this point yeah i mean it's it's not only the most secret but it's one of the most revealing. I mean, it's it's fair to say that, you know, a SAR alone is not evidence of a crime, but it has every bit of detail that a bank wants to give about a client. So it has, you know, the name of that client, the address, the contact numbers, the person at the bank who filed the SAR. And then way down after a couple of pages, it has this section called a narrative where it's basically the bank's explanation of why they've filed this suspicious activity report. 
And they were the really key bits. And, you know, you got a real insight into what the bank was saying about these customers. And, and sometimes it was saying, you know, we filed multiple reports on this client before for potential sanctions evasion. And yet they're still working with them. And there's millions of dollars going through. And so I've never had a financial document that ticked sort of so many reporting boxes just on its own. There was clearly a lot of work that needs to be done around them. But just a, it was it was really like a, it was a real chalice to, to have a hold of. And, you know, it was chalice. <laughs> it was just a brilliant like as someone who was just, you know, brought on this story halfway through, it was just a brilliant uh, resource to be able to say, like, here you go, like, have a look through these and, and do some reporting on them. It was it was quite fantastic. I see. So I suppose you're not used to having that much to work with from the beginning. No, no, it was a it was it was a real pleasant surprise, really. Um, that's usually the bit we work towards, you know, joining the dots and, and ticking more of those boxes, as, as you said. So talk to me about your background in, in intelligence and where, you know, your your expertise just really slotted into this project and, and aligned with what they were trying to find out. So I, I've always prided myself on being a, a slight outsider um, and I've sort of had a lot of success in in generating relationships with certain sources um, due to that outlook. And um, it's, you know, we did a big story in 2017 on a number of Russian assassinations in the UK. And a large part of my contribution to that and my work on that was to find sort of intelligence sources uh, in the UK and the US. And I, to my surprise, had had a great deal of success in that endeavor. and that those sources and, and, and sources following that story um, have been really important in sort of other other stories that I've done and, and really vital to my reporting. And it was sort of the the development of that portfolio and that um, Rolodex that I'd, I'd gained. Uh, it gave me what well the guys thought that, you know, having someone who is slightly plugged into the security and intelligence thinking on these things um, might be useful. You know, a lot, a lot of the reports that we were reading um, had briefs by intelligence and, and um, law enforcement agencies in the US and the UK. So um, it was actually quite handy to um, then call on me, I guess, and uh, have me check these through with some of those sources. And two of those sources were particularly key, the two whistleblowers at Standard Charters, uh, Anshaman Chandra and, and Julian Knight. How did you develop those contacts? I established pretty quickly when I started looking at the files that um, there was quite a few reports from Standard Charters. And, and during that time, I'd read this, the 2019 amended DPA with the US regulator um, due to their Iranian business. And so obviously the first thing I do is search on these SARS, Standard Chartered Bank and Iran. And tens, dozens and dozens of uh, uh, reports flag up. So I spent the next sort of couple of weeks uh, just listening to some folk music and reading those. Um, And uh, uh, Tom Warren likes his drum and bass, I like my folk. I remember that on the podcast, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And... uh, so I basically just read through those and um, then we discovered that there was this lawsuit ongoing with these two whistleblowers and they were actually claiming that 
you know, Standard Chartered wasn't completely honest with the regulator when it said it wasn't doing any business with Iran. So naturally, we reached out and um, I then spent the next um, close to a year, actually, getting to know those whistleblowers, trying to corroborate their claims, their legal claims, and really trying to get in touch with Anshuman Chandra, who was a whistleblower now on the other side of the world, which, you know, BuzzFeed were going to be perfectly willing to let me go and meet but then a global pandemic struck uh you know when you have someone who wants to be incredibly secretive and is in hiding it's not quite easy to get them on skype um you know uh so you know had it had its own difficulties but yes these these guys were were vital to sort of understanding some of the inner workings of a, of a large bank that Standard Chartered. Um, and then we started to realise that there was such a crossover between the stuff that they were flagging in 2013 and the stuff that we were now seeing in our SARS. Um, so much so that, you know, we had 230-odd uh, Standard Chartered SARS and over 30 of them were on companies and entities that the whistleblowers themselves have flagged about. So it was incredibly, it's one of those moments where you're, you're doing a story like this and this huge coincidence just pops up and this crossover happens. It was just too important to ignore. Let's take another listen to the Suspicious Activity podcast, this time episode four, which focuses on Richard's story around the two standard chartered whistleblowers. Here we can hear Richard describing the very real risk facing one of those whistleblowers and Shaman Chandra. He's risked everything so far. And he doesn't have much more, he says, to risk. So he's hoping that his testimony here will encourage others to come out and speak out against the bank because he just feels that people still need to do the right thing despite the, the negative implications that it can have. Nobody ever came out in support of what I did. Nobody ever uh, even said anything in terms of, you know, that, okay, what you did was right. My career is completely gone. I can never get a job with a bank anymore. You know, I have not been able to give my son a stable life. Uh, you know, been running away from Dubai, coming here, you know, uh, being in the hiding now, we are trying to come out in the open. Uh, but still, somewhere in the back of my head, I have this, uh, I won't say fear, but some some kind of inclination that okay, maybe something might go wrong again. I don't know. You hit the nail on the head there, really, and it it sort of begs the question: is how do you earn the trust of someone who is quite rightly fearing for their life, fearing for their safety, and in hiding? I think it's just a matter of um, showing your previous work a lot. Um, you know, I, I had to uh, really talk to them about the, the stuff I'd done in the past and just make it clear to them that, look, I'm not I'm not, you know, on either side here. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not going to re just rewriting your story. I'm not going to be rewriting the bank's story. I'm here to look at the facts and the, you know, whatever I can corroborate. And I think there's a lot of trust that people find in that. Um when they see that you're being genuine about that, I think that that's quite a have a steady 
party in the middle is quite helpful sometimes. And and it, it did help that Julian was based in the UK. So I was actually able to meet with him and he could sort of uh, communicate with Anshaman and, and give him sort of his opinion of me, which, you know, hopefully was positive. Um, and then eventually, you know, working towards having a sort of encrypted call with, with Anshaman himself. I mean, I imagine that they could possibly have had huge reservations about rocking the boat even further. They'd already jeopardised their careers by flagging what they did to the FBI and, and by making it into an even bigger scene through the media. Could have They could have quite rightly been thinking twice about doing that. So how did, that, how did you factor that in? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was a huge part of their concern and that was something that we were very aware of. And so, I mean, when you're dealing with any source of any nature, the the thing you need to make clear is that you know you set your boundaries and then you you just have to be honest with them you know they they they're fully aware of what the adverse reaction may be when when doing something like this and i'm not going to you know i'm not going to lie to them about that but that that may that is a potential possibility but i think from their perspective you know they were so far through and so far down the rabbit hole that they were just willing to take another leap of faith and just um give me their time which i'm incredibly grateful for um i hope they found some sort of comfort in the um in the crossover that i found because it does somehow sort of validate their original concerns so what were the what were the other sort of tough calls that you had to make throughout this investigation i think it, it was a it was a, a strange one in the sense that because there's so much information there it was a tough call knowing when not to start pulling on a thread because I had this uh, standard chartered um, angle going and I thought ambitiously that I could have, you know, two or three more on the go while I did it. I soon learned that that would be impossible and I'm so glad I didn't because, you know, it, it took a lot of work just to do that standard chartered um, part while helping out the other um, angles of the story. But I think that was one part is, is that you've got this massive tranche of documents and you, you know, we opened it up to the ICIJ. You have over 400 journalists in 88 countries all looking at this stuff. And that was incredibly unnerving <laughs> in a sense. I can't imagine how unnerving it was for Anthony and Jason having it be originally their, their documents. But the other thing that was unnerving is like, wow, we, you know, we want to make sure we've we've done all this right because you know we we know these other all these other great journalists are doing it, and you know we don't want to miss anything. Um, but yeah, that was the difficult call in um, trying to trying to understand when not to go down something, which for me is quite a sometimes impulsive person. It's hard to do when I see something interesting. I you know I get lost in a hole on Google and just go down and down and down and want to want to just look at it some more, but. It was a great test of uh, resilience in that sense. And restraint, I guess, as well. Yeah, I mean, you touched on the collaboration there. I mean, your offering is is one part of quite a broad investigation. BuzzFeed, I guess, realising the, the scope of what they were dealing with, reached out to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists to, to collaborate and, and sort of handle the, the sheer depth and breadth of this of this. Well, database doesn't seem like an adequate term, but that's what it, I guess it was. What was it like collaborating with, with those teams? As I say, originally, it goes against every bone in your 
body as an investigative journalist to just start dishing out this sensitive material. But it was really nice. Like it really surprised me that um, the way the ICIJ do stuff was so organized and, you know, everyone communicates on such an honest and open level because they've set up these great parameters that you work in that it was a really inspiring uh, experience, really, and one that I'll always remember, to be honest with you. It's, it's, you know, we went to this big meeting in Hamburg and, and just a, a sign of how, you know, intelligent the coordination of the ICIJ is. They, they were thinking, how do we get all these reporters to one place without causing suspicion? And they chose um, Ham, a place in Hamburg the same week as there was a giant uh, investigative journalist conference. So it didn't look strange that all these investigative journalists were all heading to this one place. Nice spot. Yeah. Um, so we all met and talked through the documents. And, you know, I met journalists who had worked on some of the, you know, big hit ICIJ stories of the past, you know, the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers. Um, and, you know, I met journalists from Venezuela, from um, Zimbabwe, from, you know, uh, Paraguay. And, and, and it was just so interesting to speak to these people about, you know, the things and the hardships they've been through in reporting some of these major stories that we just uh, are so grateful for today. And, like, their, their eagerness to just get stuck in with another one was, was just really, really inspiring to me. Before before you obviously set up the collaboration, was there a particular part of at least your segment on Standard Chartered where you were perhaps at a wall or at a block that the collaboration really helped to uh, catalyze? Yeah, I think I think with the with the sources themselves, I think it was a real help actually. Um, just to go into these meetings with them and tell them you had this huge weight of of reporters behind you um, was a great tool. I mean it really set it into them that, you know, this is going to be something that is covered by every major news outlet in the world. Um, and, and I think that really helped in getting them over the line and, and you know, working with us on this on this project. Um, it was really handy in that sense. And I think in terms of reporting, because there's so many of us, you sort of go into little subgroups on who's working on what. And once I'd figured out who was working on Standard Chartered, it was really um, useful to have other reporters who you know maybe have different styles to what we do here at BuzzFeed to offer insight into how to do certain things you know the guys from the BBC were super helpful um, there was a German outlet called Sedeutsche and there was a reporter there Mauritius who was really great with um, other aspects of the reporting it was just it was just you know I, I'm someone who loves working on a team I've worked on this team at BuzzFeed for over five years and it was just nice to work with people. It's the most rewarding thing when you work with people who also are willing to work on a team and, and, and it always generates the best results. So that was just really great. Any specific examples of that where this different style really helped? The um, BBC were really handy with getting into um, the sources um in the UK, once once someone in the UK knows that their story is going to be on the BBC, I think um, that was super helpful in in, in getting um, Julian at least over the line because um, it, it again it just shows the sort of weight we're going to be putting behind this, and I I think that was that was just a really 
huge part of getting over that and then getting into Ansham as well. So that was really great. Because I suppose from their perspective, if they're going to do this again, if they're going to come out, they don't want it to fall on deaf ears. They want to have, you know, a big impact, right? That leap of faith they're taking, they need to know that they're, it's going to be the best possible thing that they can, they can mm. do to give themselves the best chances. Cool. So how did it feel to finally hit publish, at least on your piece so to speak i don't presume that you were the one that clicked the button but so to speak how did it feel when it was all there live and and for the world to see it's an odd feeling because you know we we published our i think the first one we did was on the sunday uh 6 p.m uk time and that was it's the first time you see sort of how the world would react to it but i remember the the first thing i did was search the finson files hashtag on twitter and the first thing I saw was all the other partner stories. And by that point, I mean, I'd been working like 16, 17 hour days and, and you know, was in a real, <laughs> you know, not not my best self, let's say, uh, in terms of my, my, my mood maybe. But I remember looking through the um, the feed and just seeing everyone else's reporting and it just you really felt this sense of this huge global investigative arm and the the power that it has and like all these amazing stories and you realize why we shared those documents at the beginning because there were stories that we would not have known to do you know about you know india's number one criminal being in the files or something like that we would just never have have realized that was in there and you start to really see why you you did this collaborative effort that was a really nice moment but then it's countered with the sense that oh, wait, we've got another five stories that we need to publish. So let's maybe get off Twitter and back uh, back to work. <laughs> but um, no, having I remember reflected on it now, it feels really great to have done that and to, um, you know, over a year of our careers that we've spent um, for Jason Ante, much more. So it's really encouraging now to to see that impact and to see the reaction. It's It's just really... It makes it all worth it. It makes all the late nights and the early mornings and, you know, the stressful calls and everything. It makes it all worth it. But of course, your story is not quite finished yet because Julian's and Anshaman's last hope, their final retaliation lawsuit is still pending. And in fact, one of the clients that Anshaman flagged up, what, six years ago is now a point of interest to the Department of Justice, despite his contributions initially being deemed not valuable enough to gain protections from the FBI. So there's still so much left to dig into. Um, just wondering what's next for you now. Yeah, so I mean, that is that is a good point. And, you know, we're always now going to be on the, the FinCEN files beat. Um, we're, we're keenly following what the European Parliament do, as well as, the, you know, the whistleblowers, but I'm keenly following their trial and seeing what comes of it. But also, what the European Parliament do and they decide should be done, and also what the um, all-parliamentary group on anti-corruption here in the UK, they're having some discussions about it and, and, and thinking about policies that they can think up. So I'm, I'm going to be following up with that and seeing what um, what they're suggesting, really, and what, what they want to do and how those things develop. Um, but, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm always someone who's thinking about the next thing, and I just... Uh, I've got a I've got a, a notepad full of uh, things that I I want to start running down again and uh, you know I may I'll probably have another week off and then and then jump straight back in and uh, start looking at them see what see what comes of it. 
Do you think there's any stories left in the reservoir, like somewhere buried in all those documents? Is there anything left, you think? Almost certainly there's going to be something in there. And I think that's something that um, we're really keen to to make sure we do at BuzzFeed. And, you know, I'm sure the other partners are too, is that we go through every single thing. We tried our best to do it before the publication date, but I think there's definitely going to be more in there that we want to um, report out on. Uh, It's just... uh, being, you know, these SARS, you know, they take a lot of work around them and, you know, it's being able to actually do it in the proper way. Um, but if we can, I'm sure we will. Great. Well, when Finson round two happens, um, I'm sure I'll be on your case to talk about it some more. But for today, thank you so much for speaking to me. It's been really interesting to take a look inside um, the Finson investigations and really appreciate your insights today. No, thank you so much for your interest and it's been real, real great to chat to you. Very interesting learning about the inner workings of that investigation and one useful takeaway I have is how Richard used one whistleblower in the UK to reach a much harder one in India. Special thanks to BuzzFeed News for the clips in today's show. They were used with permission from its podcast Suspicious Activity Inside the Finson Files. You can listen to the full five-part series on most platforms including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We will leave links to that and the full investigation on our podcast article. If you like what you heard today, we are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. For more episodes from us, just search and subscribe to the journalism.co.uk podcast. If you'd like to feature as a guest, then I'd love to hear from you. Drop me an email on jacob at journalism.co.uk. But that's all we have time for today. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.